The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and I am so happy that you are here with us on Real Life Real Estate today as we so try to be your public radio source for all the inspiration and information you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And today is question and answer day. It feels like it's been a long time since we did question and answer day. I guess because, yeah, because we there was no last week of December because you guys just play holiday music. And then I think the last week in November I was in Hawaii. So it has been a really long time. So um, thanks to the inspiration of the smart boy, um, we're going to do a show today that is frequently asked questions. We put together the 10 most frequently asked questions that if you listen, if you listen back through the Q and A days from like the 200 and something episodes that are on real life, real estate investing, you hear these questions come up over and over and over again. And they come up over and over when I go to real estate associations around the country, when I'm teaching classes, it's like, I, I, you know, there's just a certain, a certain set of things that occur to folks, particularly when they are uh, first getting started. Now, I'm also very happy to take your questions, but the way that you need to ask those is either by calling 877-772-9658, if you are listening live, which would mean it was Wednesday and it was between five and six, otherwise you're listening to a podcast, or you can send an email you just send it to askvina at gmail.com. Askvina at gmail.com. I uh, have a couple of questions here already, one of which is so lengthy and detailed that I'm going to have to read it uh, during a break to absorb all of it. So, Brandon, I will get to your question. But I also have one here from Assad who says, My question is, do I need to have a job to start a real estate investing career? I mean, for financing purposes, my FICO is over 790. I have some cash savings to last me a few months. I've been out of corporate America for four weeks. Congratulations, Assad. Is, is, the, is the feeling of not having to go to work, has that worn off yet? Because it is still not worn. I, I left my job in 1989 and I still am so happy that I don't have to fight the traffic. I don't have to wake up to an alarm. I can, you know, take vacations when I want to. So I bet after three weeks it hasn't worn off. Uh, let's see, uh, four weeks. Um, instead of going back to the 95, I'm interested in starting a route to have passive income of at least $10,000 a month starting ASAP. 
I am aware of the main real estate concepts, valuation techniques, technology focused, have a degree in accounting and a very analytical mindset. Can you help me? Or how can you help me in this journey? Okay. So Asad, first let me say, no, you do not need a job in order to buy investment real estate, which is what this question is focused on. You said, I want $10,000 a month. You mentioned your FICO score. That all tells me that you're thinking of, of getting loans to buy rental properties. However, you're not going to create $10,000 a month in passive income within the next year or two. Don't, don't, don't stop listening. Don't panic. What you can create is a combination of active and passive income totaling netting $10,000 a month uh, in, in the short term, right? So what I'm saying is, you need to look at some of the flipping strategies. That's wholesaling, retailing, flipping lease options, flipping notes, things like that, that that one deal can generate, uh, you know, $10,000. And I'm actually going to look up your area code. You did not tell me where you are from, but you did give me a phone number with an area code and it appears to be West Virginia. So apparently it's like the entire state of West Virginia, in fact. Um so you are in a place that I would, if you truly do live in West Virginia or not just from there, uh, that's a that's kind of a low dollar market. So you might have to wholesale or you might have to wholesale two deals a month to get to $10,000. You might have to um, retail a deal every two months to get to that $10,000. So $20,000 would be your profit. That would be $10,000 a month for two months. And that's what's going to keep you out of corporate America. Now, taking taking that money and more importantly, your knowledge and also buying properties that are creating passive income is going is something that can happen simultaneously for you. And really, um, your credit score does not matter as much here as your as your knowledge base does. Um, I have not gotten a loan from a bank in going on 10 years. Part of the reason for that was that for several years there, banks just weren't really making loans to investors too much. And now the reason is that uh, conventional loans, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, uh, limit you to having 10 total mortgages. And I have way more than 10 total mortgages. It used to be if you had 10 Fannie Mae mortgages, and now that's not the rule anymore, now it's 10 mortgages all together from any bank, and I'm way past that point. So I don't go to the bank to get money. Um, I get owner financing, I get private financing. Um, owner financing is a lot of fun if you want to spend some time learning about that. And that's how you're going to acquire your rentals, probably. You know, you're going to live off your active income, and then you're going to create some reserves for your rentals, and you're going to. Um, put those together until you have $10,000 in actual passive income. So my first piece of advice for you is wherever it is you happen to live, and again, not certain, uh, go find a good real estate investors association because you're going to need the networking. You're going to need the, the on the ground knowledge of those folks. You're going to sometimes need their money and sometimes need them to buy your deals and sometimes you're going to need to buy their deals and you really have to become part of a community like that. Uh, the next thing to do is get at, you know, you say you already kind of understand how real estate works. Well, then go start making some offers. It's been four weeks for heaven's sakes, Assad. How come you haven't bought a house yet? 
you need to go start making some offers and especially uh, on off-market properties would be my advice. And of course, keep listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing and asking questions uh, as they come up in your life. But if I were suddenly and permanently out of corporate America, knowing what I know now, I would do a combination of active and passive real estate strategies until my passive income had built up to the point where I was making the $10,000 a month I wanted to make. And that will probably, by the way, be when you have paid your properties off, which you can easily do with the active income you're creating. So thank you very much for your question, Asad. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, and we're going to make this a a frequently asked questions show. Uh, but we'll also take your calls at 877-772-9658. You can also send an email. Just send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. I'm going to be doing some frequently asked questions here in a moment, but also taking your calls and emails, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. At tomorrow night's Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meeting, Robin Thompson, the queen of rehab, will be there to regale us with her latest tips and strategies for making money flipping houses in 2018. Now, let me tell you something, folks. If you have not RSVP'd, you need to do that. I just looked at the RSVP list on CincinnatiRia.com, and there are 160 people who have already said they are coming to this meeting. Now, our, our folks aren't great at RSVPing. And we generally find that we can add something like 25 to 50% to the number that shows up on that website when I look at the when I look at the RSVPs. And this means that we are going to have an excess of 200 people there tomorrow night. And in order to have enough chairs, enough food, all that kind of stuff, we need to know if you're coming. And you should be. I mean, Robin is just, I mean, you heard her a couple of weeks ago on the show. She's amazing. So uh, CincinnatiRia.com to RSVP for the meeting tomorrow night. It is free to anybody who wants to show up, first time guests, second time guests, past members, whatever. Uh, If you can't get to the meeting in Cincinnati, she will also be in Columbus next Tuesday. You can RSVP for that meeting at centralohioria.com and she will be in Dayton on Wednesday, next Wednesday, uh, and that is uh, gdrea.com. So just Please let, let folks know you're coming because we know we know it's going to be a mob and we need to know how big a mob it is. So question from Brandon Z. Brandon says, this is the one I needed to read during the break because it is like literally five paragraphs long. So I'm going to be uh, doing a little bit of editing for time here. He says, first off, I'd like you to know how much I love your real estate public access radio show out in Ohio. Although pre-recorded webinars and training certainly have their value and rightful place, I especially appreciate you consistently making yourself available in this way. Note that I did not edit that part. Um, I have so many questions for quick background. I got started back in 2008. I used to regularly attend a meeting up here in New Jersey. Uh, I never, I began educating myself, but never got to the point where I successfully did deals. That's why I'm tremendously grateful that you're changing the direction of your show more toward personal development and empowerment and away from how to general knowledge and various niches and strategies. Uh, it never fully dawned upon me how important the success habit of regular reading is. Having said this, 
Since around this time last year, I found myself looking into real estate investing again. I began exploring some online communities, read a ton of personal development types of books and some education and success mindset books. I began focusing on my self-education and networking activities on mortgage note investing since the niche appeals to me and I keep hearing about the, uh, the absolute necessity of having laser focus from a handful of successful people. All the more when you're first establishing your primary ca cash cow. Are you that knowledgeable at note investing? Are there any helpful resources, contacts, or other assistance? Um, I designed and ordered note investing business cards this week, and he says he's going to a conference uh, on note investing in New Jersey uh, in the second week of February. So, Brandon, um, I'm glad you found something that appeals to you. I'm glad that you are putting on the blinders and going after that. I would really need to sit down with you and talk about your financial resources, your uh, goals, etc. to know whether note investing is something that I would personally recommend to you. Um, I, I know enough about note investing that I could probably teach a beginner's course on note investing, but I couldn't teach like an advanced course on it. Um, I've done a little bit of it myself. I create notes and sell them. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a real estate girl. I, I, I buy properties. I then trade the properties for payment streams. And then sometimes I sell the payment streams. So from that perspective, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty experienced in getting more so literally every week. But note buying is a strategy that... Uh, it's just, it's not the same as real estate. There are, there are totally different calculations about what you would pay for a performing or defaulted note versus what you would pay for that house. If you were, if you were going to buy the property instead. And it it's a, it's a game where you have to expect to take some losses especially if you're in the defaulted note business. Um, it's just part of the business that every once in a while one's going to go completely belly up and you're going to lose everything. And so the goal is do enough deals that the winners uh, greatly outweigh the losers. Now, obviously, you can do a lot to mitigate the idea of the losers by just being educated and doing your due diligence and all of that sort of stuff. It seems to me from from observing the the edges of the real estate business, because Here's the thing. My significant other is entirely into the note business. Like that is all he does. So I kind of see the edges of what's going on in that business. Um, it appears to me that the inventory that's out there is going at higher prices, significantly higher prices than it did even three years ago, but certainly a whole lot more than it went for five years ago. In other words, a defaulted note is still a defaulted note, whether it happened in 2009 or whether it happened in 2018, right? Either way, the seller's not paying. So in 2009, you could buy that defaulted note for 20 to 40 cents on the dollar. And in 2018, depending on whether it's a first or second, people are paying 60, 80% of the balance of these defaulted notes. And part of the reason for that is the same reason the real estate market is going up, which is there is more competition in the note business than there was 10 years ago. So that none of that meant to dissuade you. Uh, if you, if you let, <laughs> if you let the fact that other people are doing your same business dissuade you, you are just never going to get into anything in real estate. The, the trick is be more educated than the 80% of your competitors who are halfway doing it. 
and be more aggressive and do what needs to be done. That's the that's the solution. In terms of resources, this is public radio, so uh, can't really like give you strong recommendations on you know this is the best way to go. But if you go back into the archives at realliferealestate.com, go to go to go to the website realliferealestate.com, you'll see that there's like. I don't know, 10 shows on the front page, but then there's a see more. And when you click that, you'll see there are over 200 shows from the past, I don't know how many years up there. Look for uh, interviews with Dave Van Horn, who you mentioned in your email here. Look for interviews with Joe Varnador, Eddie Speed, Donna Bauer, um, just kind of to get a feel for what they do, because really, and Scott Carson, they do different things. It's the same note business, but they do different very, very different things in it. Now, Joe Joe, and Eddie don't because they work together, but Donna Bauer's business is very, very different than Dave Van Horn's business. Um, Joe Varnador's business is very different than Scott Carson's business. And I think it helped me to understand that there were lots of different ways to do it. And so if one niche gets to the point where you just cannot find any deals in it, you just move on to another niche, if you follow me. Uh, so sounds like you're doing all the right things. You're reading, you're doing your inner game thing, and you are, um, you got your, your mindset right. You're hanging out with the right people. So uh, I think this will work out for you. So that's great. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, question here from Anita, um, who is here in Cincinnati. Uh, she says, I purchased a property back in July, subject to the seller's existing loan. I got a call from the seller this past weekend inquiring about the end-of-year statement that she typically receives from her lender, which provides the information as to the interest that has been paid for the year. She was asking because she's in the process of completing her tax returns and wants to know what she gets to claim. How do I need to deal with this situation? Would the interest paid for the year just need to be prorated from January 1 until the date of the sale. Um, yes, Anita, that is, you, you've basically got it right, but the reporting mechanism for that, that most folks who buy property subject to don't really bother with or, or even probably understand, is that you should you should give her a, the, 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 uh, interest statement. So for the whole year, you should give her the interest statement and then you should you should give her a I believe it's a 1098 form that says that you paid her the last 6 months worth of interest on the property. So in other words, she gets let's say there's $10,000 worth of interest to be deducted and you send her a thing saying but you paid her $5,000 worth of interest which is an offset cuz you didn't pay her that, you paid it on her behalf. But that's officially how it should be calculated. Now in her case, she's probably just writing down on the on the tax return, this is how much interest I paid on this house before I sold it. So just give her the number, just whatever whatever the number would have been from January 1 to the date of sale. Just send it to her in a letter and say, I received your, I received the interest form from the bank and the part of it that you're entitled to is this. And then if the IRS ever audits her, you have the form to show that A, she paid the interest for or a the interest is being reported to her social security number and b she um did sell the property in july so there you go anita all right uh it's real life real estate investing it's question and answer week uh today was going to be an all frequently asked questions show but then you guys asked a bunch of questions which is awesome i love that you're answering asking questions but 
we're going to we're going to get through these. We're going to get through these questions that I get asked every freaking week. Every week. Okay, um in no particular order, here they are. I'm a brand new investor. So, should I get started by wholesaling? Very common question. People have heard of people have heard of wholesaling. They've heard it's a good way for people to get started in real estate, so they want to know if they in particular should get started wholesaling. And the answer is, it depends. Uh, you know, if you're a brand new investor with a lot of cash and a desire to develop passive income like Assad earlier, and you've also really always wanted to own apartment buildings, I can't imagine why you would intentionally start with wholesaling when it in no way meets your needs. It doesn't provide passive income. If you have a lot of money and make a lot of money, it's just going to create a tax problem for you. There is not some career path that people in the real estate investing business are supposed to go through. And yet there seem to be a lot of people out there who sort of think that there is. Like first you wholesale and then when you've when you've got enough experience wholesaling, you retail a property and then um, when you've got enough money from that, you go buy a rental, single family, of course, and then you move up to like a four family and then an apartment building. And it's it's just it's just not true. Those, those things, while they do in a sense build on one another, it doesn't matter where you start. You have to you have to learn the same set of basic skills to wholesale a property as you do to buy a rental property. You have to learn how to find the deal, evaluate the deal, make the offer figure out the financing, all of that sort of stuff. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you start. You should start with, you should start with the thing that the exit strategy that is most likely to get you your short-term financial goals. So if your short-term financial goal is I need to buy five houses so that I can get them paid off in 15 years so that I can retire on something other than my social security income, don't start with wholesaling. There are ways to, there are ways to, do that without money or credit if that's your problem and creating the cash from the wholesaling isn't going to especially help you get to your goal of having five rental properties. So no, it is not the case that you should necessarily enter the business by wholesaling first. This is the first or second most question, most asked question I get. Like in, in the last 20 years, if I were just to count the number of times I was asked different questions, this would be number one or number two. Should I get my real estate license? Again, the answer is it depends. Do you want to be a real estate agent? Because if you do, definitely get your real estate license. If what you want to be is a real estate investor, having a real estate license is a little bit of a help. Like like maybe a 5% boost and and, and, and all of that boost comes from the ability to access the multiple listing service to get comps, which any agent could do for you, and the ability to access multiple listing service to find potential deals, which right now, that's not, that doesn't tend to be where the deals are. So most folks who go to get the real estate license believe that somehow the classes that you take to become an agent are going to teach you to be a better real estate investor. Eh, wrong, 100%, nope will not do anything to help you be a more successful real estate investor. Uh, in fact, I think sometimes that people take these classes 
as kind of a kind of a way of like not doing the hard work of going out and finding deals and making offers that they would just as soon not make. So 100%, I'm going to say no. Do you need to get a real estate license to invest? Absolutely 100% not. Do I have a real estate license? Yes, I do. But the reason for that is that uh, I, when I realized I was doing enough deals that it was super important to just be able to access MLS myself, uh, then I went and got the license, but I didn't get it to get started in real estate investing. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, doing some frequently asked questions and also taking your questions. You can give me a call at 877-772-9658 or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. And, uh, you know, some weeks we do question and answer week and there's a few calls and I'm doing a lot of tap dancing and other times there's like a zillion questions, which is what's happening the week that I decide that I'm going to just do frequently asked questions. So, uh, so taking your questions at 877-772-9658 or via email at askvina at gmail.com. This question is from somebody who just identifies themselves as V. V says, new investor looking for cash, still working full-time job, started driving for dollars to wholesale. Question, what is the rule of thumb of how many pieces need to be mailed to close one deal? 10,000? 1,000? 100? Well, guess what, V? The answer is, it depends. If you are identifying the right houses, you're driving for dollars, which, which typically has the highest response rate of any kind of mailing you could do. If you are truly identifying um, vacant, ugly houses, or at least houses that are significantly ugly, they're not just kind of, oh, look, that house has a little piece of flaking paint. I mean, I'm talking, you know, gutters falling down, holes in the roof, all the paint flaking, uh, clearly vacant because there's a giant pile of newspapers on the front porch, that, that sort of thing. If you, if that's truly what you're IDing and your thing that you're mailing is even halfway decent, you know, tells, tells the people that you're interested in buying their house and that if they're interested in selling it, you would love to talk to them and it'll be easy. and It'll be a short conversation and you'll be able to tell them right away whether you can do anything for him or not, you know, that sort of mailing piece, not the threatening, oh, third notice, how come you haven't contacted me back? Not that BS. If you're doing it the way I'm I'm saying, your response rate on driving for dollars mailings should be like somewhere on 7%, I mean, maybe five on the low end. And since you know you need 20 conversations with motivated sellers in order to make one deal, That means of every 100 postcards you'd mail, you would get five calls. And so you would need to mail 400 postcards, right? The math math of marketing isn't that hard if you know what the KPIs of marketing are. So go find 100. Well, no, honestly, in order to be, in order to be um, sure that you're going to have 100 addresses to which to mail, you really need to find like 115 to 120 properties because some of those sellers, you just cannot find an address for them other than the one 
at the vacant house that you know is vacant because there's boards on the windows and doors and some of them will be bank owned and you won't write to those folks. So call it, call it, you'll have to find a 500 houses to get out 400 postcards. Uh, thank you so much for your question, V. Uh, more frequently asked questions. What type of entity do I need? That's probably four or five, number four or five down on the list. People get very concerned about, do I need to get an LLC? Or, or they'll just say, I'm not, I'm not making offers because I, I don't have my LLC set up yet. If you are getting started in real estate, I am begging you not to spend the time and money and effort to set up an LLC or a corporation or a limited partnership or anything else that anybody might have told you that you needed, particularly not a Nevada corporation, unless you happen to be listening from Nevada, in which case, of course, 100%, you should set up a Nevada corporation for your business in Nevada. This is another one of those things that go into the category of get, getting ready to get ready. And man, I've seen people spend 10, 20, 30 and I say this without exaggeration, 70 or $80,000 getting ready to get ready. Never even made an offer, but I have my LLC, I have my business cards, I have my uh, software that I'm tracking the leads I don't have with. Uh, I know how to do a 1031 exchange in case I ever buy a house. I have my real estate license. I have my answering service, which has never taken a call. I still pay them $100 a month, but they've never taken a call because I've never generated a lead in my entire life. I have a done-for-you mailing service that I've never used. I've got 300 bandit signs in my garage, which I've never hung. And I've got a $50,000 education under my belt, but I've never actually made an offer. I'm really on a mission from God here to make people understand what the minimum you need to know and do to go out and like make some money. <laughs> it's just stop spending money, but and make some um, because there's that there's this whole movement in the real estate education industry to make you spend the maximum amount of money getting ready. And it's crazy. And having an entity before you have any assets to protect is crazy. Now, if you have a rental property and you own it in your own name, I'm, I'm going to give you exactly the opposite advice. You definitely need to have, if you own property already, you need to have an entity in which you own it. But in order to go make an offer on, let's say, a deal you plan to wholesale, you can just make it in your own name because you know in most states it takes like five days to set up an LLC. So you could just assign the contract to your LLC if you want to do that deal through your LLC for some reason. It's not it's not a lengthy process. So please don't do it too early on. Okay, thanks. Um, what else? Um, commonly asked questions. If I'm going to use direct mail, this one this one's been coming up a lot in the last four or five years. If I'm going to use direct mail, what to what list should I market? Only it's usually said grammatically incorrectly. It's usually said, what list should I market to? To what list should I market? Um, guess what? The answer is to that. Guess what? I'll give you five dollars if you can guess what the answer is to that. It depends. So here's the thing. Where you live matters a lot when it comes to what what sort of lists would it be easy for you to get? Uh, so, for instance, um, 
if you live in northern Kentucky, right across the, the river from me, lists like eviction and probate, which are good lists if you're trying to find distressed properties, right, are, are it's sort of hard for you to find that information online. Here in Ohio, it's very easy to find the information online. So in Kentucky, if you're trying to create a list from public record of something like evictions, it you typically have to go to the courthouse and kind of beg and plead for the information. Uh, or if you're willing to just look at the list of people who are in court today, uh, that is posted in the courthouses down there. So would I twist myself out of shape trying to do probates or evictions in northern Kentucky? I would not. It's just, it's not an easy, it's not easy data to access. And in some areas, some things are like weirdly simple and other things that are simple, like where I live, are really hard. So part of it is what can I, what can I, get that's not a list I'm buying, but a list I'm creating, because most of the lists that you buy fall into one of a small set of categories. Uh, Absentee owners is one. And in my experience, that list is, it's the most overworked list in the country. And it's just not a very motivated list of people. Uh, The second most common one is what's called the high equity list, which is people who at least theoretically don't owe a lot on their property. Um, Not a great list, easy to buy, but, and and it's not that you won't get any results. It's that compared to something like generating your own probate leads, uh, it's not going to be super, it's not going to be a super uh, responsive list. Um, Foreclosure lists can be purchased almost anywhere in the United States. And that's an interesting list because the folks are, at least for a brief period of time, typically more motivated than your average seller. However, if you're going to market to foreclosures, you better know how to do short sales. So this is this is a, you see, see how it depends? I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. It depends on where you are. It depends on how easy certain lists are to get where you are. Uh, you know, I think going with V's method of driving for dollars is probably the best way to find motivated sellers of any way that there is. Uh, So I, you know, whenever somebody asks me that, I say, tell me what lists are easy for you to get. And I will tell you which ones I would mail first. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. Right now we're doing frequently asked questions, but there are there is some time left to answer your questions if you would like to call them in at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. And because there are no more questions in my askvina at gmail.com inbox. I'm going to continue with the 10 most common questions that I and probably every other real estate association leader slash seminar instructor slash whatever is asked. Um, Somewhere in the top 10 is always this one. If I'm wholesaling, should I find the buyers first or should I find the deals first? And the answer is, (laughs) it depends. If you were asking this question in 2009, 
when there were lots of deals deals were not the rare thing there were banks just giving away properties to practically anybody who had the money to buy them I would have said you know you probably need to start with the buyers list now the buyers list is not a list of people for whom you are going out and searching for particular kinds of properties like if Mike here said what I really really want is a property in Indian Hill that has at least 11 bedrooms and that I can get for $200,000 or less. Uh, I, you know, I, it, whether his, um, whether his requirements are that ridiculous or not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put myself as a wholesaler in a position where I am trying to be a deal finder for Mike because what I need is deals that appeal to lots of people. I don't need deals that appeal to Mike because if I go out and find the deal that appeals to Mike and then Mike cannot buy it or will not buy it or wants to play the game of, well, I'm your only buyer, so I don't want to pay as much as you want me to pay for it. I, I don't, I'm not really in control of my own business. So a buyer's list is not about, I know what Mike and Dave and George want. And so I'm going to go find those things. A buyer's list is just about, I know these people are looking for real estate and that they have the ability to close and the willingness to close and that they closed on deals before. So in 2009, that would have been really important. In 2018, it's really just a different story. I mean, every wholesaler I talk to tells me the same thing, which is I can sell a deal in five phone calls. And it doesn't even have to be people I know that well. I can, I can sell a deal by going to my RIA group and standing up in front of it and saying, I have this property for sale and here are the details and somebody is going to end up buying it. Because now the situation is reversed and there are more buyers in, or there are more buyers in the market than there are deals for them. So, you know, today, should you have a list of people that you know something about? Yeah, because you should be hanging out at your real estate association and you should be meeting people and not just going in and sitting in the chair and looking up at the empty front of the room at the blank screen until somebody starts talking. You should actually be networking and meeting your fellow real estate entrepreneurs. And that alone will help you build a buyer's list. And I, as a matter of fact, that was how I built my buyer's list when I first got started. Another question in the top 10 most common questions that I am asked, how do I learn to estimate the repair costs for properties without being a general contractor? Well, that's like saying, how do I learn to pray without being the Pope? I mean, you, you know, the, the two things aren't, aren't really necessarily associated with one another. Um, so it turns out that there are only about 40 things that really go wrong with properties. And within those 40 things, you might see many variations. You might see, wow, this kitchen's a mess because it flooded and the cabinets are all swollen up and moldy. But the problem is still the same problem. We need a new kitchen. Uh, you might say, well, this kitchen is bad because it's 50 years old and it's just outdated. Well, okay, that's fine. But the problem is we need a new kitchen. You might see a kitchen where the tenants have torn doors off the cabinets. Okay, that's fine. But we need a new kitchen, right? I mean, it all, it all basically comes down to the same thing, which is what does a new kitchen cost? You could say the same thing for windows, roofs, gutters, um, you know, now, now there's some, there's some structural things that happen with houses. 
there are foundation failures, there are bad termite infestations, there are situations where the water has been allowed to intrude into the house so long that it's not just the roof that's bad, it's the it's the trusses that are bad and the wood is rotted, you know, in the on the outside wall of the house and those sorts of things we normally we we normally just walk away from. We don't bother to try and price those because we just know they're going to be super duper expensive and unless the house is also super duper expensive, we're not especially interested in getting into those sorts of repairs. So of of the, of the remaining ones, the mechanical and cosmetic issues, there's like 40 of them. So here's the thing. It does not cost the same amount of money to put a roof on in Florida as it does in Cincinnati. It we don't we don't do the same things to windows in Cincinnati as we do in Phoenix. Cuz here it gets cold and wet and there it doesn't really do that, so they don't worry so much about making sure that the windows are insulated and whatnot. Um, there's different construction here than there is, you know, here in the Midwest than there is out in California. So it is somewhat regional in terms of what do things actually cost. So this is this is what I always tell new investors. Get yourself a list of the 40 things that go wrong. Replace the furnace and central air, hot water heater, um, rewiring, uh, roof, gutters, um, kitchen bath, flooring, various types of flooring, paint, etc., and then go to the rehabbers in your group. The last person I would go to would be a general contractor. Because the general contractor is looking at you and going, is this a potential customer or not? Whereas the rehabbers in your group can tell you what they pay as opposed to what they want to do the work. And go to three or four different people and ask about, you know, how much do you pay to replace a window, including wrapping it? And you know, I would say 250 bucks. And then you would go to my friend, Jerry, and Jerry would say, I spend 325. Well, if that's the case, say to Jerry, that's interesting. Why do you pay 325 when Venus shit says she pays 250? And Jerry will say, because I only rehab houses in the 200,000 and up range. And I buy the most high quality windows that I can possibly buy because that's what my buyers in that price range expect. And then you come back to me and say, why do you only pay, spend $250 on a window? And I would say, I, I buy the I buy the lowest end decent window there is because I mostly have rental properties. And that answers your question, right? More expensive, rental, rent, more expensive rentals are, uh, or more expensive properties get higher end windows and cheaper properties get lower end windows. That's now you know, right? Um, this guy pays $3,500 to put a new furnace in. This guy pays $2,800 to put a new furnace in. What's the difference if the $3,800 guy says, well, I know I could pay less, but I really, 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 really like my furnace guy. And that's what he charges. Now you know, right? So that's how I would do it. Okay. A question from Angela in Atlanta. She says, hypothetical situation, but an, an answer would assuage my fears. Let's say I get a probate deal under contract, but I can't find a buyer. I don't want to let my seller down, so I need to buy it myself. Say it's a good deal, but all of my buyers have enough properties currently. What steps would I take to get financing, or what are my financing options, and how long would that probably take? The exit strategy in your answer doesn't matter. So, um, Angela, first of all, if if you got a good deal and, quote, all of your buyers have enough properties, you're not living in 2018, or you're not going to a RIA group because all I hear every place I go is buyers looking for properties, buyers looking for properties. But I get your point. You're saying, okay, despite all of that, what would I do in a situation like this and how long would it take? Well, Angela, I happen to know that you have a job. 
So your best bet would probably be conventional financing. Um, conventional financing is going to take 45 days between the appraisal and the uh, you know underwriting process and the closing and all of that stuff. It's also going to cost you 20 to 25% down. And it is going to, the, the big hang up with your conventional financing might be that the property itself doesn't qualify. Property itself is too rough. So your second best bet would be a sort of a hard money bridge financing. Like if you intended to keep it, but you needed the money in less than 45 days because you had to close the deal, you might want to go to a hard money lender who's charging, you know, 12% and, and two points or 12% and three points and just get it closed long enough to get it sold or get it rehabbed or or maybe get conventional financing on it, right? Um, hard money loans are much faster, probably probably two to two and a half weeks if you will provide all the information. However, they are still going to require money down. So keep that in mind. If you if you don't want to put any money down, your only option is really a private lender. Uh, let's see. Question from Kuda. Uh, hey, Veen, a big fan of your show. Thanks for this useful advice. I just got my first rental, which is getting close to being ready. I've heard some people say they give their tenants a list of things that they're responsible for. For instance, cutting grass. What would you include on that list besides cutting grass? So I'm assuming, Kuda, that this is a single family home because obviously, you know, in a two family, which tenant do you tell they're responsible for cutting the grass? Um, basically, tenants in single family homes are responsible for all of the upkeep of the house that doesn't rise to the level of a repair. You're not going to you're not going to say, well, you know, your roof is your responsibility. But cutting the grass, shoveling the snow if you live in a place where there is snow, uh setting out the trash properly because in a lot of places if it is set out improperly by which I mean a day early, not picked up until a day late, um in bags instead of cans, all that sort of stuff. Uh, you will get fined for that. So they need to not just set out the trash, but set it out properly. They are also really responsible for pest control. Uh, assuming that there are no pests in the property when at the point at which you rent it to them, which I would hope would be the case, uh, really they are the ones who need to take care of the pests. Now that is one where if a tenant calls and says, I've got mice or bed bugs or whatever, uh, I'm going to go ahead and exterminate them because I don't want the problem to get out of control and the tenants to move and me to be stuck with a pesty house. But, you know, typically if a tenant has an ant problem, like, fine, go buy ant traps. You know, it's, and stop putting food out where ants can get them because that's how ants come into your house. Uh, that That's pretty much, you know, cl- keeping the common clean areas clean, keeping the outside of the property clean. Uh, Those are all typical tenant responsibilities in a single family home. And I hope you have an awesome lease, Kuda, because you can't enforce any of this without the right lease. Thank you very much for your question. And thanks to all of the folks who asked questions today here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing. 